Our Father, we thank you this morning for this day, for these days. It is almost exactly three months ago today that we last gathered together for worship. And we are thankful, Father, for your protective hand over us in these months. You have kept us safe physically. You have kept us safe spiritually. You have protected our unity. You have given us joy and harmony together with one another. And now you have given us the anticipation of regathering together next Sunday. And, O oh, Father, might you be so gracious as to make those plans come to fruition. And that, Father, we might gather together again with expectant joy, with even greater joy than the last time we were gathered together. And even as we prepare ourselves for that regathering, we ask this morning that you would give us insight from your word, that you would give us a word of hope for our own hearts, for undoubtedly some of us are weary, some of us are exhausted, some of us might be feeling hopeless even while we know we should have hope. And would you equip us this morning for carrying your word of hope to our community, to our nation, and to the world. Would you guide us this morning, our Father, by this word of truth. Transform us by this word of truth. Give us mission and direction by this word of truth. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Thursday morning, I got up and went for a run as I typically do on Thursday mornings. And, and I woke up a little bit earlier than typical. And so it was still dark out when I went to run. So on my way away from the car, I grabbed my headlamp and put my headlamp in, on and made my way down the road. It was a little bit warmer than normal and more humid than has been typical these last days on Thursday morning. And so, as I made my way along my run, I found myself a little bit more weary than typical. About a half mile or a hair over a half mile away from the finish line, I caught through my headlamp on the side um, of my run some movement. And as I cast my headlamp to the movement, I saw a cat running towards me. And I, I saw that in about five more of my paces, the cat and I would, would cross at the same point on the sidewalk. And I thought, that's a little bit odd. I've never seen a cat along this portion of my run previously. And then I looked more carefully at the cat, and the cat had a very broad tail. And then I noticed the white stripes along the back of the cat, and I said... I have seen this kind of cat before, and I think it is not a cat, but I think it is a cousin of Pepe Le Pew that is making its way towards me. And suddenly, though I was weary, I put it in high gear and sprinted for about 75 yards so that I could get away from said skunk. A crisis narrowly averted. I got home and began to clean up and finished cleaning up and was headed off to put on my shoes when I heard the back door of our house open and Regine yelled one word, 
snake. And I responded and said, let me get my boots. And I quickly grabbed my boots and jerked my boots on and ran to the backyard. And as I made my way out of the back door into the backyard, I, I saw my dog in the back of the yard just turning its head viciously back and forth, shaking something in its teeth. I couldn't tell what she had in her teeth, but Regine was yelling at it, No, no, drop, drop it, Fiona, drop it. And in that moment, all I could think of was the two-inch diameter copperhead that Regine killed in our backyard about two weeks and thinking, if that dog drops a copperhead, she's in trouble. And what do we do? And so I ran to the to the dog and and to our great relief we found that she did not have a copperhead but she did have a possum in her teeth she dropped the possum and the possum was dazed and we kept her away from the possum we scooped up the possum in a shovel and then uh, discarded said possum on our way to discarding the possum I began telling Regine my story about the skunk And I said, it's like wild kingdom around here. You never know what's going to happen or where the next adventure will come from or where the next attack will come from. Some of you may be feeling the same way about our culture. Who knows where the next attack will come from? Who knows where the next traumatic event will come from? In some senses, we live in very dark days, culturally. When I was in seminary, the word homosexuality was hardly spoken, and there was no one who ever gave any, even a fleeting thought, to something called homosexual marriage or considered that such a thing could ever become a viable option, never mind something that is bandied about, embraced, and even celebrated in these days. Abortion, murder, drug use, enslavement to all kinds of vices, laziness that is corrupting the workforce, entitlement, personal and national debt, and more are massive and growing social ills. In February, I came back from an overseas trip and and found that there were a lot of people that were talking on the news about this strange flu-like epidemic that was happening in China and some of the precautions that were taking place over there. And I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder I wonder what kind of impact that will have here. Or why are they making such a big deal about it? that? That will never show up over here. And it was just a few short weeks later when it did show up, and and things have been turbulent, to say the least, since then. Not just with relation to COVID-19, but but a disruption of relationships as, as relationships have been splintered, an economic impact that, that we couldn't have imagined in those days, and all kinds of other ills. The death of George Floyd two weeks ago and the subsequent protests and riots are tragic on so many levels. It feels like our country is being torn apart from the inside out with ethnic hatred and rebellion against authority leading the way. I don't remember the exact statement that he made, but several years ago, John Piper said that if we could see but for one instant, for one second, 
all of the tragedy, all of the hardship, all of the suffering, all of the sin that takes place around the world in that one moment as God sees it, we could not stand it. We could not, we could not endure the tragedy of that weight. I believe that statement to be true. Over the last two weeks, particularly, my response likely has been the same as the response of many of you. Oh, Lord Jesus, come, come now, come today, Lord Jesus. And, and in His grace today, we are one day closer to His coming. And yet, though we are one day closer, we do not know when that day will be. It could be in His grace this week. It could be later this year. It could still be a decade away, or it could be a century away, or it could be a millennium away. We don't know when that day will be. And yet our our culture still continues to degrade. And so the question is, until Christ comes... What will we do? How will we respond? How will we minister to this world that is so terribly broken? What word of hope, what encouragement, what response will we give to this world? How will we help this world? How will we guide this world? How can we or how should we change the culture? How will we respond in these days? What will we do? In some sense, we can answer that question with one single word, the gospel. But in another sense, we really can't give a full answer even in a sermon, never mind in a tweet, which way too many people have been trying to do over the past weeks. But we can find some of the things that that the Lord calls us to do in ministering to a broken world in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, in in his letter to the Ephesians directly, and then in his second two letters to the Ephesians as he writes to their pastor, Timothy, in those two letters. In those letters, we find some basics of what the world needs now. In those letters this morning, what we will find is this. What the world needs now is for us to be what God made us to be. What the world needs now is for us to fulfill our calling. What the world needs now is for us to be morally and righteously what God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do. What the world needs now is is for us to be what God made us to be. And as we look at these passages, we will find five provisions of God for us in our ministry to the world. Five provisions for us in our ministry to the world. As we think about Paul's letter to Ephesus, Paul's letter is given to a place that is not so different from our place. It is, it is not so different than the world in which we live. Ephesus was was a crossroads of civilization, if you will. In political power, it was the residence of the Roman governor, Three major highways passed through it, making it a trade center. It was a port city, which enhanced its ability to be a trade center. It was uh, also a banking center for much of Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. As a religious center, it was 
It was the place where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, was resident. She was a god of fertility, so as you think about a temple, don't think of that as being a good thing because it was a pagan temple. As a pagan temple, it was an asylum for criminals and cult prostitutes, a a mixture of of cultic priests and cultic prostitution, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers and dancers and frenzied and hysterical worshipers. There, there was a gathering there that was diverse and ungodly in its diversity and behavior. The weeping philosopher Heraclitus said that the inhabitants of the city of Ephesus were, quote, fit only to be drowned And that the reason why he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. That is a secular philosopher who said that. Ephesus was a rich city. It was powerful and it was decadent. It was, friends, not so terribly different from our world and the place where we live. Paul warned the Ephesians of what the world would be like at the end of the age. And he, he warned the, the Ephesians that, that this, is, this is what is coming. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells the Ephesians, as he writes to their pastor Timothy, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, now verse 2. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That was what was coming. And friends, doesn't that sound very much like the world we live in today. That's not only the world as it will be at the end of the age. That is the characteristic of the world without Christ in general, always. And sprinkled throughout Paul's three letters to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians and First and Second Timothy, he gives instructions about how to live in this kind of world and how we can influence this world. These are reminders of some basics for how we are to conduct ourselves as we minister in this broken, hurting, suffering, confused world. How should we conduct ourselves? Five principles that Paul gives us first. He says the world needs us to be careful. The world needs us to be careful. What what could the Ephesians give their city and what can we give our city? What can we give our state? What can we give our country? Notice what he says in Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 15. Therefore, he says, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. In fact, Paul is transitioning here. He's becoming beginning a new section. And this is all part of a section that begins in chapter 4, verse 1, that we looked at last week. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So this is one more way to walk worthy of the calling that Christ has given us. This is one more thing to do, one more way to live in a way that reflects the salvation that has been granted to us through Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? He says we are to be careful how we walk. In fact, that word be careful is more literally look 
carefully then how you walk. That's how the ESV translates it. And I like that sense because be careful is gives the sense that it's only one word, but there are actually two Greek words that the apostle uses here, the first of which is look, that is watch, be attentive, see, examine. And don't just look, but look carefully, that is be attentive to the minutest details, be accurate, exact, and conscientious. That word of care is used about a historian who would be careful with the details of his accounts. And, and it's used of those who will listen with great attention. They're giving great care to, to the words that are being spoken so they can understand the message with clarity. To what should a believer look with care? Notice he says, be careful, look carefully how you walk. What should he watch? He should watch his life. He should watch where he is walking. That figure of walking is simply a figure of speech for how we live our lives, what we do, where we go, how we conduct ourselves, just the nature and the trajectory and the course of our lives on a daily basis. The believer is to give attention, examining with discriminate care his life. Says John Stott, Everything worth doing requires care. If we're going to do something, we ought to be careful about it. We ought to give attention to it. We ought to examine it. We ought to, we ought to look carefully at it to make sure it is consistent with our calling. Saying, be careful how you walk is another way of simply saying, what is the trajectory of your life? Which way are you going? How are you conducting yourself? What's your trajectory? When Paul says this, he is, he is simply reiterating some of the things that he has already said in the previous section. He has said in verse, verse 10, we, we should learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We ought to figure out what pleases the Lord, what is honoring to the Lord, what brings glory to God, and then we ought to align our lives with that kind of trajectory. We ought to go in that kind of direction. Further, verse 11, we, we should examine the world and examine our lives and say we do not want even to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead of participating in them we want to expose them so we want to delight in the lord that's what we put in, put on and we want to put off the deeds of the world the deeds of darkness the unfruitfulness of this life in this world And then notice what else he says at the end of the verse. Not only should we examine the way we live and what we do, but we ought to examine, is this something that is wise or unwise? We ought to be those who walk not as unwise men, but as wise. We ought to examine the the quality of our convictions and and the, the, the direction in which we're going and ask the question, is this unwise or is this wise? Is this is this discerning or is this foolish? How, how, are we, how are we to understand wisdom and foolishness? The wise man is the one who has knowledge. He, he has knowledge, but then he also provides ability and perseverance to make the right choices at the opportune time. He may not be the most intelligent man, 
But that which he knows, he applies to his decision making, and that's the trajectory in which he will go. What he knows about God, what he knows about God's world, that's what he applies to how he lives. Conversely, the unwise man, the foolish man, does not apply what he knows. Specifically, he embraces his sin and he runs away from God. He ignores the known cost of his ungodly choices. He, he willingly and intentionally even chooses sin. And Paul makes a sharp contrast between those two options. And he says, not as unwise men, but as wise. Don't go this direction. Examine your life. Be careful with your life not to go this direction in lack of wisdom and towards intentional sin, but instead go this direction where you are going to the things that are pleasing to the Lord. What's the value of doing this? It demonstrates to the world what a redeemed life looks like. It shows the world there's a way out. You don't need to conduct yourself in such a way that you are bound by sin and enslaved by sin. You don't have to suffer the consequences of an ungodly, sinful life. There's a way out. You you can have a life that is different, and, and this is what it looks like. And your own life becomes a picture of what Christ can do. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's Peter, Peter's way of saying be careful about the way you walk or about the way you live. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does it mean for an unbeliever to glorify God when God returns? It means that they have observed our life and that has become a catalyst to them trusting God so that when Christ comes back, when God sets up His throne, when they have to give an account to God, they give Him glory. That is, they've become redeemed themselves. Oh, friends, even the conduct of our lives is such that it will be attraction to unbelievers. What can we give unbelievers? We can give unbelievers a morally changed, a morally spiritually transformed life that becomes attractive to them so that they are drawn to Jesus Christ as Savior. The world needs us to be careful with our own lives, with our own conduct. Secondly, the world needs us to take advantage. The world needs us to take advantage. Verse 16 expands on and develops what it is that a believer is to do in living wisely and not unwisely. So he says in verse 16, making the most of your time. This explains how we are careful. It is a a specific, it's not the only um, explanation or application of what it means to live wisely, but it is one application of how one might live wisely. This verse, making the most of your time, has been understood to mean... um, by, by some, we ought to make sure that we are careful with every minute of our time and, 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 and be cautious with, with every single minute of time that we have. I, I had a friend that had a t-shirt that, uh, that said something like this. Um, I believe that God gives us uh, a certain number of tasks to do when he sends us to earth. 
right now, I am so far behind on all of my tasks, I may never die. And that, that has the sense of, of, of we need to redeem and we need to account for and use wisely every single minute of our time. And, well, it, it's good to use our time and every minute wisely, but, but that's not what this text is saying. Uh, the, the King James actually has a better translation or a better sense of it. It has the, it has the, the translation redeeming the time, redeeming the time. And it has, has the idea of, of buying or shopping in the marketplace and, and making an advantageous purchase. So we buy something low in a sense that we can sell high, an inexpensive price for something that is valuable in return. This same word, um, making the most or redeeming, is the same word that is used of Christ's redemption of our sins. So, so we might say something like this. We ought to conduct ourselves in such a way that we live what Christ has done in us. We ought to live redemptively in this age. And what does the wise man look to purchase? What does he look to redeem? Notice the apostle says, we are to redeem the time. Redeem our time. And there, there are two different words for time in the Greek language. One of them refers to chronology. That is the moment-by-moment moment sense of time. The minute-by-minute the, the minute accounting of time, hour-by-hour, day-by-day. And there's another word for time that refers to, to days or to seasons, to ages, to large blocks of time. And that's the word that the apostle uses here. So he's not thinking about redeeming every single minute, but he's thinking about redeeming the age or redeeming the season in which we are living. In other words, we are we are looking to redeem opportunities. The wise man is looking to redeem every circumstance of his life for godly purposes and godly influence. Here's the principle. Every circumstance of our life is a redemptive opportunity. It is an opportunity to accomplish spiritual purposes. Everything that happens in our lives, everything that is going on around us, is an opportunity for God to redeem it for good. The circumstances of COVID-19 and George Floyd and your medical bills and your interpersonal conflict are all opportunities for spiritual redemption. How are you doing? How are you redeeming those things? It's, it's good to be um, productive in every moment of time. But friends, it's better to see every circumstance as a spiritual opportunity. Why should we be seeing every circumstance of our lives as spiritual opportunities? Look at what the apostle says. We should, we should redeem these seasons because, verse 16, the days are evil. And I think Paul would imply two things from that statement, the days are evil. He means us to understand that the days are morally perverse. They are controlled by the evil one. And we have an opportunity when there is evil all around us to influence this time and our particular circumstances with gospel truth. 
Because sin abounds, there is a clear discrepancy and clear distinction between sin and the righteousness of Christ. And because sin abounds, we have an opportunity to say, I know the way out. Follow me. Looking at the last couple of weeks, the problem of these days is not that there are different perspectives on racial inequality and civil unrest. The problem of these days is revealed in what the Bible calls the events of these last weeks. It's not it's not racial discrimination, friends. It is ethnic hatred. It is hatred. It is evil. It is stealing. It is coveting. It is bitterness. It is treachery. It is murder. Whatever has happened, whatever side some find themselves on, the propensity has been to go into one of those sins or more. And friends, it is all under the category of evil. And, and it's not different perspectives. It's not that it's not ethnicity. It's, it's not protesting that's made these days evil. What has made these days evil is hatred and murder and stealing and abusive language. And friends, the social program won't fix that. But the gospel does. When we live in these evil days, we understand that the gospel has a particular means and a particular ability to save, to change, to transform. So one implication of this statement is the days are morally perverse. But there's another implication of that statement. And that is the days are evil, but they will not always be evil. These days are evil now. But one day, the Lord will come and the Lord will judge every single evil act of rebellion against Him. And there will never again be one evil act, one act of rebellion, one thing that does not bring glory to Him. Everything from that point forward will be righteous. And at that point, our opportunity to see people transformed from those who are evil to those who are righteous is over and ended. And friends, that means that when we see this phrase, because the days are evil, we also need to see the phrase, take advantage now. Now is the time. Now is the opportunity. Now is is the time to declare the truth of the gospel because there's coming a day when we will no longer be able to do that because Christ will have judged it all. So, so now we must take advantage of the opportunity. The question is, are we taking advantage of the opportunities the Lord is giving us these days? There's a third principle, a third provision that the Lord gives us And that's in verse 17. And that is the world needs us to understand. The world needs us to understand. So then Paul summarizes. He says, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, he says. In fact, it's not just do not be foolish, but it's stop being foolish. In other words, they're already engaged in foolish behavior. And he says they are to stop their foolishness. They ought to stop being the kind of people who do not use good and godly judgment. They ought to stop being the kinds of people who are not taking advantage of the opportunities that the Lord has given them. And in contrast to being foolish, Paul says you are to understand. That means they're, they're to have a grasp. They're to have a comprehension of something. And, and what is it, is it that they are to understand? He says you are to understand the will of God. Now, there's two different kinds of God's will. One is God's decreed will. That's his secret will. That's, that's the will in which he has determined things within the Trinity. And by and large, almost all of that will we do not know, we don't understand. That's his, that's his sovereign decree. That's his sovereign direction. And we don't know that will. But there is a will that he has revealed to us, and that is his moral will. And that that is the will that we have in the Scriptures. He has told us what is right. He has told us what is true. And it's that will which we are to know and to understand and to do. And it's that will that Paul is talking about in this verse. We, we should know the moral will of God, and we should do that will. We should understand that will. So when Paul says a wise man who understands the will of God, he means a wise man is the one who willingly and joyfully obeys and commands the, and follows the commands of the direction of God. He obeys God. He knows what God says to do, and that's what he does. And contextually, as we look at this, we, we understand that part of what the will of the Lord is given to us in verse 18. Don't get engaged in moral perversity. That is, don't be drunk with wine because that's dissipation, that's wasteful, that's, that's profitless. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. That is, submit yourself to the will of God, submit yourself to the Spirit of God, submit yourself to the Word of God. But there's also an implied will that he's given us in verses 16 and 17, isn't there? And the implied will is, if God has put these circumstances around us and he is telling us to act redemptively in this evil time and in this evil age, this evil age where we should not be surprised that that is what it is, then we should be bold with the gospel in this. The will of God is that we would speak the gospel, that we would interact with people so that we will preach to their problems and declare to their problems what what their hope is for Christ's transforming work. What the world needs is for us to be careful. The world needs us to take advantage. The world needs us to understand. Turn over to the next page, chapter 6, verse 18. Fourthly, what the world needs is for us to pray and for us to proclaim. Paul, you know this passage well. Paul talks in verses 10 through 17 about the armor of the believer and what the believer has been granted to wear, what, what has been given to the believer so that he can conduct himself with purity in this world. And then in verse 18, um, he notes that that provision of God's armor is to be accompanied with prayer. So in verses 13 to 17, he denotes the exact nature of the armor. And then notice verse 18, with, 
That is, the armor ought to be accompanied by something else with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. He says we are to ask God continually about everything. In fact, he uses two words for prayer. He says we ought to pray and we ought to petition. And the object of our prayer, the object of our specific petitions and requests ought to go towards God. And he says we are to do that in all things, all prayer, all circumstances, whenever we have a need, whatever the need is, we are to go to God in prayer. The form of prayer isn't important. It is important to pray. This answers the question, for what should we pray? Then the apostle also says we are to pray at all times. In other words, every time is a good time to pray. And when Paul says pray at all times, that means just what it sounds like it means. We are to pray without ceasing. We ought to pray constantly. We, we ought to always be in an attitude of prayer. We ought to be in constant communion, constant fellowship with the Lord. And we ought to have regular seasons of prayer throughout the day. It's always a good time to pray. And we should always be ready to pray. This answers the question, when should we pray? And then also notice verse 16, he also says not just pray at all times, but with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and all petition. So with perseverance, friends, it is tempting to want to stop praying, isn't it? It's it's tempting to give up in prayer. It's tempting to say God hasn't answered and so I'm just going to stop. It's it's obvious that 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 the heavens are brass and God isn't listening and so I'm going to stop praying. No, Paul says, continue in prayer. Persist in prayer. Don't quit praying. And this answers the question, how long should we pray? And then he says at the end of the verse, pray for all the saints. By this he means pray for anyone and everyone. Our lives and our prayers should not reflect self-absorption, but they should be praying broadly for the full context of the church, all of the church, every believer, every circumstance that we know about, we should be praying for them. Everyone that we know has a need. And the question is, are we praying for those people? Are we praying for their needs? This answers the question, for whom should we pray? So for what should we pray? Everything. When should we pray? All the time. How long should we pray? Constantly. For whom should we pray? Everyone. Those are a lot of all-inclusive terms, aren't they? And so Paul is very clear about how we are to pray. And then he takes that principle, and in verses 19 and 20, he points it in on one very specific thing. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Twice in those verses, he says, pray for me that I would be bold. I I have a responsibility to pray. Would you pray that I would speak with boldness? I I have a temptation to pull back. Isn't that encouragement to you? Even the Apostle Paul, 
Even the Apostle Paul, with the gifting that God gave him, not just as a believer, but as the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Paul, who has written 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, even the Apostle Paul, who is perhaps apart from Jesus Christ, our Savior, the, 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 the most prominent member of the church, certainly the early church, even the Apostle Paul says, I, I have a tendency to shrink back in gospel opportunities. Pray for me that I would be bold in those opportunities. Why? Why does he say that I need to be bold? Because notice what he says at the end of verse 20, there is a way that I ought to speak. There, there, there's a kind of speech, and that speech is gospel speech, communicating the gospel, evangelizing those who are lost, that I ought to speak and that I ought to give. It's a reminder that this is not optional. It's a responsibility. It's a duty. It's a duty to the apostle because he is an apostle. But it's a duty to the apostle because he's also a believer in Jesus Christ. And he had the same great commission given to him that is given to us in Matthew chapter 28. There is an oughtness to the gospel. And brothers and sisters, what the, what the world needs now is for us to declare with unhesitating boldness, this is the gospel that will fix your problem. This is the gospel that will transform your life. This is the gospel that will set you free. This is the gospel that will give you hope, not just now, but in eternity. I am well aware that the gospel is under attack today more than ever. There are many, even in the church or the so-called church, who are running away from the gospel and saying, there's something more that is needed. The gospel is under attack. The truth is being rejected. And truth-tellers are being marginalized. But friends, we still have no greater gift to give the world than the gospel Professor Daryl Harrison noted well this week. Many say they want to end racism. I get what they mean. But racism isn't like a carton of milk with an expiration date. Biblically, ethnic prejudice is not an ism. It is hate. Period. And you end hate by repenting and believing the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, what the world needs now, what the world needs today is the gospel. What killers and thieves need is the same, the gospel. What my neighbor needs and I need is the same. We need the gospel. There's no hope for this world or for our neighbors or for anyone else in this world except for the gospel. Now hear this. Listen to what Rico Tice said in one of his books on evangelism. Your neighbor lives down the street because God put them there. Your colleague at work sits at the next desk to you because God sat him there. In God's sovereignty, what is going on in history is that God is reaching out to people so that they will reach out for Him. The reason your neighbor lives where she does is so she will be reached for the gospel. 
Why did God want a Christian, you, to be in your workplace? Yes, so you can bless your boss and workers by working hard and honestly. But first and foremost, it's so that others there can hear the gospel. God has put us in this world at this time so that we would do what we ought to do with boldness. And that is to pray for the gospel and to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, to speak the gospel. For there is nothing else in this world that will help anyone else in this world save the gospel of Christ alone. What the world needs now is for us to be careful, to take an advantage, to understand, to pray and proclaim. And finally, the world needs us to be hopeful. Come with me to Paul's last letter to 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last paragraph in Paul's last letter. This too was a letter that was sent to Ephesus, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy, And we do well to remember Paul's circumstance as he penned these words. Paul is in prison. Paul had been imprisoned, rather. He had been imprisoned under house arrest in Rome for two years. And then he had been released from prison and he had traveled extensively, including a trip to Spain. Nero had um, been atrocious in some of his conduct and he had burned the city of Rome and he had blamed the Christians for it. And as part of the response to that, the Apostle Paul was rearrested in A.D. 66. He was returned to Rome and then he was put to death perhaps in A.D. 67. Unlike his first arrest, his second arrest was very different. He was not under house arrest but he was confined into a dark dungeon, inaccessible to visitors, deserted by his companions, and he was well aware that death was looming. In addition to all that, there were false teachers, some in Ephesus who had been perverting the gospel. And it is in that context that Paul writes this last letter, this last paragraph. Notice with me verse 18. Let me start in verse 17. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Notice that he says, I was delivered. That's verse 17. From all the hardships that he endured, Paul's concluding comment was, God delivered me. God kept me safe. God preserved me. God gave me physical life that has endured to this time. And he is grateful for that. And then he says, verse 18, and he will deliver me. He will rescue me. And shortly after those words were penned, the apostle was put to death. 
the believer can be confident that the Lord will always deliver him. But sometimes the delivery is not from death. Sometimes the delivery is through death. And notice what the apostle says at the end of verse or middle of verse 18. He will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. The apostle's great hope was not that he would continue to live perpetually on earth. The the apostle's great hope was that he would be taken home safely. And friends, that is our hope as well. Paul has found his triumph in death. He does not engage in self-pity because of disappointments. He does not engage in self-pity out of fear over what lies ahead. But he does indulge in a trust of God. And his last word to us gives us the sense that circumstances may change and circumstances may be various, but God is faithful in all of it. And we know that if He has granted to us life, He will see us through, into and through that eternal life. Friend, what keeps you from trusting God? What keeps you awake at night? What are your fears? What are your anxieties? Whatever that is, you can say, the Lord will deliver me and the Lord will take me safely home. That's our hope. Our hope is not that our problems on earth will end. Our our hope and our confidence is that we will be taken to glory. That's the message that this world needs to hear. This world needs to hear a real message of hope. Oh, friends, I am tremendously hopeful in these days. I am not expecting the political scene to get better. I'm not expecting our health to get better or divorce, or abortion, or homosexual marriage, or immoral movies, or murder, or hatred to go away. I do not expect those things to get better. Frankly, friends, I expect those things to get much worse. But I am hopeful because Christ is King, and He is coming back, and He will set up His throne, and He will rule and reign with righteousness And He will take all of His people home to Him and they will be with Him forever. Friends, that's my hope. And that's the hope that we have to share with this world. We do not have a hope that the government will get better. We do not have a hope that problems will go away until Christ returns. And that is what we must share with this world. Oh, friends, like you, I grieve for our country. What does our country and what does this world need right now? It does not need more political activism. It does not need um, an extreme rhetoric that escalates into into riotous vandalism and theft. It doesn't need another pastor's snarky comments. I'm not saying it's wrong to be involved in the political process. But brothers and sisters, we have so much more to offer than political change. 
We have an eternal hope to give the world that nothing else will ever grant them or give them. To borrow and then change the imagery from the beginning of the sermon, we have the sweet-smelling savor of Christ to give hope to this world. Listen to what the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Who's adequate for these things? For we are not many, like many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. Friends, what the world needs now, one person at a time, is for us to be a fragrant aroma of the gospel of Christ. Our own lives changed. Our own lives transformed. Bold lips speaking the truth of the gospel. Friends, what the world needs now is for us to be changed and for us to be bold with the gospel. Father, we thank you for the hope of this day. We thank you for the hope of of this word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the privilege of the gospel. And our Father, we thank you for these difficult days. We do not thank you because we like the difficulty, but we thank you for these difficult days because of the opportunities it is granting to us. We pray, Father, for our country and for our leaders. We pray that you would be so gracious as to give wisdom and salvation for all of our governmental leaders, for our president and for our senators and for our representatives and for our governor and for all of the people in his cabinet and for all of the senators and state legislators, for our mayor and our city councilmen and our our county commissioners, Father, for our policemen, for our judges. And Father, we pray for, we pray for our own Tyler Looper that you would be so gracious as to grant him protection as he serves us, protecting us in our community. And that you would give him discretion and wisdom and discernment so that as he protects as he serves, that not only would his life be protected, but might he particularly be a vessel of truth to those whom he serves with on the, on the sheriff's department force and the community in which he serves as a protector. Father, we ask as well for transformation of those among us who are haters of people, for people who are prideful and angry and full of hatred and murder, 
And Father, we would ask that you would forgive us of our own bitter words, of our own hatred. And we would ask that you would transform our words into redemptive words and redemptive offers of the gospel. Father, might our lives be so changed and might our lives be so transformed that those who see us who do not yet know Christ would be drawn to him as they see the character of our lives. And then, Father, would we not only be what we are called to be, but might we speak what we are called to speak? Might we declare what we ought to declare, the good news of the gospel? And in so doing, Father, would we be kept from despair? Would we be kept from anxiousness over a world that is degrading? And might we be made hopeful for the world that is to come and the privilege of speaking of that world to those who need that message so greatly? Father, thank you for these days. Thank you for this church body who loves you. Thank you for the opportunities of these days. Make us what we are called to be. Give us boldness to do what we are called to do so that the world will receive what the world needs now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.